Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Jono, what's the news, pal? Well, the news is people seem to be liking the new format here. I'm hearing nice reports. Uh, people loved Rachel Wax, uh, as did we. There was no pushback uh, to having the little separate video. Uh, I did get one note from someone who works with a uh, magician youth program. I was very happy to know what was uh, in the contents of a podcast. And we don't do it for any other reason than we want to make sure everybody can hear the podcast. I I have all kinds of podcasts I listen to where there's plenty of swearing, and I'm fine with that. But they all also have the explicit notice on them, which means uh, some kids can't hear. So that's why we do it this way. If you don't like that, I would say you could do your own swearing during the show as you're listening to it. Not to put too fine a point on this, but I've heard you swear. I certainly swear. I've sworn at you many, many times. Yeah, exactly. We're not prudes from the Midwest, I guess, is all I'm trying to prove. I'll swear right now. I will. I nope. I got the horn ready. I got okay. the Harpo horn ready. So don't don't, don't even bother. Any trouble. Speaking of uh, Harpo, who's someone we love, there's Mister King of Segways going. Someone else we love is John Carney. And when he was on a couple of years ago, big thrill for us to talk to him. Very kind of him to do that because I think he gets asked to do it a lot. I would think so because he's one of the finest magicians in the world. Really, and I don't think it's something that he loves to do uh but he was very nice to do it with us and he made a point during that interview he said something that i, I know we've referenced since but i like to talk about a little bit more here's here's what he had to say so you know a good sleight of hand is in the planning stages it's not like all right i'm already performing now let's see if i can get away with this you know really quickly move your hands and get away with it it's nothing like that it's like anticipating in advance the thought process, what people are going to see, what they're going to be thinking, what they'll be suspicious of, and just one by one, just taking care of those things. I, I call it a, a sophisticated simplicity. People confuse simplicity with easy. If you say, this is a very simple trick, or I work this out so it's very simple, people go, oh, so it doesn't take any skill, learning time, five minutes. It's go, no, it's like it took a really long time to figure out how to eliminate all this fluff, all this extraneous stuff. And it's just, it's a process of uh, sanding down rather than hacking away, you know, just sanding things away and gradually making things better over a period of time, thinking them through and always looking for a little, little improvements. So, you know, why not do it better? You know, and you don't have to be the best in the world. That's not my goal to be the best in the world. And it shouldn't be anybody else's. I think your goal should be, it'd be great if I was better today than I was yesterday. Because I know magicians that have been it for 60, 70 years, and they're, they're no better than they were in the beginning because all they did was collect things. They collected secrets and things. So they were into obtaining secrets and props and things, but they never tried to just polish a few things and make those things uh, effective. You know, it's better to do, a few things really well, really thought out, really entertaining, really deceptive and invisible and, and uh, all that, than to do a thousand tricks mediocre. You're not going to do a thousand tricks for people. If you do four or five tricks for people and the, if, if they're fantastic and they're entertaining, 
what do you need that many more tricks for? Yeah, pretty darn smart stuff from a very, very, very good magician. Yeah. Well, Maybe one of the best close-up magicians I've ever seen live. He yep. just is so good and so polished. And uh, that's smart stuff. Hard to do. Sophisticated simplicity is what he called it. Yeah, it, but not easy to do. Uh, it's really difficult, I think, to because here's my deal, and I think maybe we've gone a, a, a an episode or two without mentioning Eugene Berger. So let me get it in right now. Okay. Uh, I think it was Eugene who said to me, "If even if an audience doesn't know what you did, if they know where you did it, the magic." is ruined or lessened because even if they can't understand what you did, whether it's a, you know, a very difficult move with a deck of cards or some sort of coin palming, if they don't know what you did, but they know where you did it, that takes away from the magical experience. And so I think it's really difficult to eliminate all of those possible things and john carney does it and it, 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 i have nothing but profound respect for someone that takes that much time to create a magical experience for someone else yeah it's the honing we've talked about his idea of honing something not chopping it but honing it sanding yeah and sanding yeah just sanding yeah. it down sanding it down and i love that idea of he's of him saying uh it's not my goal to be the best in the world although he might be but yeah. that's not his goal um he thinks it's a better goal is to, to simply be better than you were yesterday and not to hearken back constantly to george campbell but that's something in the george campbell interview that that jerry seinfeld said mm -hmm. uh you know it was never my goal to be jerry seinfeld my goal was to be better tomorrow as a comedian than I, than I, than I was today. And that you end up as Jerry Seinfeld by following that, or you end up as John Carney, yeah. uh, two of the finest performers I've ever seen simply by following. I want to be better tomorrow than I am today. Yeah. And as George Campbell would tell us doing it consistently, that's the key. Consistency is the key. Yeah. And uh, hard to do really yeah. hard to do. Um, so I applaud uh, both Mr. Seinfeld, who doesn't need my applause, and uh, John Carney, who also doesn't really need my applause. But gosh dang it, if you ever are in a position to see John Carney work, rush, run, don't walk, get there, because it's yeah. it's great stuff. It's great. And if you get a chance to do a master class with him, because I, when we had him here for Sunday Night Magic, most magicians who came through town did a lecture. He doesn't really do lectures, but he'll do a master class where 10 or 15 magicians sit with him and they each perform something and he gives you notes. He gives in you notes. In a very kind way. In a very kind way, in a very smart way, in a way that is uh, directed toward your skill level and, yeah. and what it is you're trying to achieve. And I did Bwave for him and he had some really good notes on Bwave. Um uh, and I know you've met with him in that capacity early on, because when I yeah. first 
went to the Wizards convention, which was the first one I went to with you, you had, you said, oh, I'm, I'm coming back Sunday morning because I'm uh, doing a thing with John Carney. And that was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, if you could sit with somebody at that level, it doesn't matter to me what, what you, uh, what you're interested in. If it's music, if it's magic, if it's painting, if it, if you could sit with a master just for a few minutes and listen at the feet of the master. Uh, I think it's a, 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 a an opportunity that you absolutely grab a hold of if you can. Because even if you, there's no way that I approach in any way, shape, or form his thinking, his skill level, his his knowledge, his breadth of you know. But I can take whatever I can take, the little I can take. Uh, from that, it's absolutely worth it to to sit with somebody who's a master at anything. It, it, and it really wouldn't matter. I mean, if, if you are, even if you have no, I have no, absolutely no interest at all in playing the guitar. But if Bruce Springsteen said, you want to sit for a few minutes and I'll talk? Yes, absolutely I would. If I have no interest in you know, whatever, whatever it is, it's sitting with somebody who is a master at it is so great. And Carney is, he's a master. He really, really is. Speaking of masters, uh, oh, let's stop. talk about your book, pal. Oh, stop. Oh, stop. It's time to continue reading. And this season, third book in the series, The Miser's Dream. Can you catch us up? What happened in chapter three before I dive into chapter four? Sure. Chapter three. Eli recognized that there was a big envelope of money in the projection booth with the dead projectionist, $75,000. Oh. I had a nice breakfast with Harry where he talked about the idea of uh, jealousy because Quentin Moon makes him jealous. Quentin Moon being sort of John Carney-esque in that sense, a real master. He runs into Mr. Lime. He did a, a, a very bad version of uh, the miser's dream for Mr. Lime, and then Lime extended an offer. And that takes us right into chapter four. Chapter four. The Minneapolis Homicide Division does not take offers or make deals. No, but the Minneapolis District Attorney's Office does, so shut up and let him talk. After combing through City Hall, I had finally come across Homicide Detective Fred Hutton an assistant district attorney, Deirdre Suttonhutton, in the midst of eating their lunch in the building's cafeteria. After the kind of playful banter you'd expect one to exchange with one's ex-wife and her new husband, I explained the reason for my visit. Wait, who is this Mr. Lime? Homicide Detective Fred Hutton asked, holding up a hand to bring the conversation to a dead stop and turn it in a direction more to his liking. And why should we listen to him? You remember? His name came up earlier this year during the Dylan LaSalle murder investigation, Deirdre explained, and then turned back to me. We couldn't find a trace of the man during that investigation, Eli. He was vapor. And yet, you say he called you again out of the blue? I shook my head. No, just like he did last time, Mr. Lyme posed as a potential client, called my agent, and booked me to perform at what turned out to be a bogus event. Kid's birthday party, no less. You hate doing birthday parties, Deirdre said, sounding almost sympathetic. 
They're the worst, but work is work, I replied. Like Harry always says, follow the money. Before we could continue this discussion on the microeconomics of being a working magician, homicide detective Fred Hutton jumped in. And this guy claims to know who killed the projectionist, Tyler James? I shook my head again. No, but he does have a theory as to why he was killed, which I understand is more than you folks currently have. The Homicide Division is pursuing several important leads, he said with great diplomacy. In other words, you have nothing, I translated. He just stared at me, so I turned to Deirdre. She nodded. Let me tell you what he told me, and then I'll lay out his offer, I said. I gestured toward their uneaten food. You may want to eat while I talk. I'd hate to see your food get cold. We're eating cold sandwiches, homicide detective Fred Hutton said dryly. Well then, I'd hate for them to get warm, I shot back. Anyway, Mr. Lime said Tyler James has made a good living for years as a movie memorabilia broker. Deirdre, who had just taken a bite from her sandwich, raised an eyebrow and reached for a napkin. I held up my hand and began to elaborate. You see, as a broker, Tyler acted as a middleman. If you were looking to buy an expensive original movie poster or you had a rare film print to sell, Tyler would handle the deal. If you were selling, he'd find a buyer. If you were buying, he'd find a seller. However, I added, Tyler also offered services which other brokers avoided. Deirdre was still chewing, so she gave me a shoulder shrug, gesturing that I should continue. Homicide detective Fred Hutton just stared at me in his patented bovine manner, chewing slowly and methodically. The first was that Tyler was more than happy to look the other way if the piece he was brokering was warm or perhaps even hot. He didn't seem to mind who the rightful owner was, only how much commission he could make on the sale. The other service he offered, I continued, was he was willing to work anonymously. The buyer didn't need to know who the seller was and vice versa. In some instances, even Tyler didn't know who he was dealing with. Deirdre had finally finished chewing. How did that work? Bogus email accounts, cash drops, wiring money to and from offshore accounts. And Mr. Lime thinks this was a deal gone bad? I nodded and then eyed Deirdre's potato chips, suddenly remembering breakfast had been a long time ago. She pushed the plate in my direction, and I grabbed a couple of chips and quickly scarfed them down. Perhaps Tyler was completing a deal in the projection booth with a customer, she began to theorize. Something went south, and the killer shot Tyler and left him to die in the booth. Her husband was shaking his head slowly from side to side as she spoke. Doesn't make any sense, he said. The killer left empty-handed, leaving the money on the table and the gun on the floor. And somehow locked the door from the inside on his or her way out, Deirdre added. That's just the thing, I said, taking the opportunity to grab more potato chips. Mr. Lime doesn't think the killer left empty-handed. I glanced at the pickle slice on her plate and then up at Deirdre. She gave me the nod, and I didn't need to be told twice. Remember those two empty film canisters next to the weight bench? 
They both nodded at me. If the film which was in those canisters is the one Mr. Lime thinks it was, the killer left with something very valuable indeed. What does he think was in there? Deirdre asked. Oh, only the most famous lost movie of all time. It doesn't look all that amazing. I didn't say it was amazing. I said it was famous and lost and therefore valuable. At my behest, we had moved our impromptu meeting up to Deirdre's office where I availed myself of her computer and the Internet. Moments later, I was clicking through a series of still photos from the classic 1927 silent movie London After Midnight. It is generally believed that the last surviving print of this Lon Chaney movie had been destroyed in a fire around 1967, I explained as I pointed out the man of a thousand faces in one of his least seen yet most iconic performances. Wearing a black top hat and a coat which seemed to open like a pair of wiry bat wings, Cheney peered back at us from the computer screen. Long, stringy hair flowed out from under the hat, and his eyes were deep-rimmed, wide, and bulging. But the standout feature... The primary reason the image possessed its haunting quality was his broad, wicked smile and his teeth, each of which appeared to have been sharpened to a razor point. Okay, but if the last surviving print of the movie was destroyed in a fire, Deirdre said, then what was Tyler selling? I turned away from the computer and looked up at her. It was odd to be sitting at her desk, but no odder than laying out the terms of a deal from a wispy ghoul like Mr. Lime to my ex-wife and her cop husband. I pressed on. Apparently, there's been a rumor floating around for years that a German film collector had a copy which was seized, along with all his other assets, by the Nazis during the war. Somehow, the film print made it to Switzerland where it was purchased by a buyer on the black market. He sold it to someone who sold it to someone else who sold it to someone else. Then it's not really a lost film if this copy exists, Deirdre began, but I cut her off. That was exactly my point to Mr. Lime, but it was stolen by the Nazis and should, by all rights, be returned to the original owner's family in Germany. Whoever has it now can own it, but can never admit to owning it. It's stolen property, homicide detective Fred Hutton said matter-of-factly. That's right, I said. They can't claim ownership. They can't screen it publicly. They really can't get any of the benefits of owning the only print of the most famous lost movie of all time. Except the satisfaction of owning it, Deirdre offered. Exactly, I said. But is it worth killing for? Apparently it was to someone. Here's Mr. Lime's offer, I began. We had all shifted positions in Deirdre's office. I was now seated in one of the two chairs in front of her desk. She was in her rightful place behind the desk, while her husband had taken up a board position leaning against a windowsill. Deirdre had a dish of hard candies on her desk. The earlier pickle and potato chip combo had not sated my appetite, but instead intensified it. I considered pulling one or two candies from the dish, but they'd been in that bowl as long as I'd known, Deirdre. 
I suspected if I attempted to pluck one out, I would instead pull out the entire sticky, messy mass. Because of his familiarity with the world of local black market movie memorabilia, I said, Mr. Lime believes there are four likely suspects in this case. Including him, homicide detective Fred Hutton muttered under his breath from his sullen position across the room. He insists he was not involved in this transaction in any way, and I, for one, am inclined to believe him. Why? Deirdre had noticed my longing look at the candy dish. She reached into her desk drawer, produced a granola bar, and tossed it my way as if mollifying a cranky toddler. I gratefully grabbed it out of the air. For one, I don't believe he's ever lied to me in the past. This produced a derisive grunt from homicide detective Fred Hutton. I acknowledged it and continued. The other reason is, why? Why would he pull himself into this investigation if he were involved in some way? Because maybe he's insane, Deirdre suggested. Oh, there's no question he's crazy, but he certainly isn't stupid. And his offer is so benign, I guess would be the word, I said trying to best capture the nature of his request. It's so benign that, in the long run, I don't see how it can hurt. And if nothing else, it will give you four names to look into, which I understand are four more than you currently have. Deirdre leaned back in her chair thoughtfully, then turned and looked at her husband across the room. Their silence said volumes. He gave her a nearly imperceptible nod, and she pivoted her chair back in my direction. Okay, what's the offer? The way he laid it out to me, it's simplicity itself. He said, tell Woodward and Bernstein. I stopped and looked at their blank faces, realizing I had left out a key piece of information. I should explain. Mr. Lime is big on movie-themed nicknames for people. He calls his mute assistant Harpo. He calls me Mandrake. He calls you two Woodward and Bernstein. Deirdre gave me a long look. Why? Because you're investigating this, so in his mind, you're Woodward and Bernstein from all the president's men. Trust me, I lobbied hard for Nick and Nora Charles from the Thin Man movies, but he was adamant. I looked at both of them, and the puzzled looks I got in return told me it was time to move on. Anyway, after he gives you the suspects' names and you interview the four people, he wants you to allow me to talk to them as well, after you're all done. He wants you to talk to them after we talk to them? Homicide detective Fred Hutton spat out the words. Why? I shrugged. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure why he keeps picking me. He says he likes my perceptions. And that's it? He gives us the names. We give you access? Deirdre's tone told me she was highly suspicious of the simplicity of the deal. That's it. Why? She said, repeating her husband's previous question while dragging the word out to several syllables. I don't know. Something about this whole thing is sticking in his craw, I said, not really certain the rail-thin old monster actually even had a craw. Okay, 
Deirdre sighed, leaning back in her chair. What's the next step? I smiled. Do you still have that big flower pot out on your balcony? Her eyes narrowed to slits. Yes, I still have the flower pot. It's covered in snow, but I have it. If you agree with these terms, you need to put a flag in it. A flag? Yeah. Nothing elaborate. A stick with a handkerchief on it will work fine. Why? I had to give Deirdre credit. She continually found new and curious ways to draw the word out. Because that's how Woodward, or was it Bernstein? This stumped me for a second. I think it was Woodward. Whatever. That's how Woodward communicated with Deep Throat in all the president's men. She gave me a long, penetrating look. I put a small flag in the flower pot on my balcony, and he'll give us the four names. I nodded. What could be simpler than that? Her response was typically short, sweet, and utterly obscene. Okay, now this is the moment I've been waiting for for two years, I think. Uh, the movie London After Midnight, a famous lost film from, I think, 1927. Uh, as a kid, I saw pictures from that movie in Famous Monsters Filmland magazine. It's one of Lon Chaney's most impressive makeup jobs, maybe not his most disfiguring, uh, but really iconic. Anytime you think of a scary dude in a top hat with sharp teeth, you're thinking of Lon Chaney. And I knew that... Um, I wanted that when I wrote the book, I wanted that to be a big part of it. And we did the audiobook, and that was great. And then we started this podcast and I knew there was a guy named Daniel Titley out of England who was writing the definitive book about the conception, making, distribution, and uh, loss of London After Midnight. And it was self-published and it took a while. So we took a year off from the chronology. We listened to uh, book number eight last year, and now we're back book number three because that book is done now and it's out and it's a terrific book. And so next episode, we're going to dig deep into Lon Chaney and London After Midnight with the author, Daniel Titley. I just want to say to our listeners, what you need in your life is a friend like John Gaspard, who has all of these kinds of pieces of information that I find fascinating but didn't know anything about or <laughs> have any frame of reference, and yet they are absolutely riveting. This, I, I knew nothing about London After Midnight. I may have had, I certainly have a frame of reference where Lon Chaney is concerned. And, Lon and that image of him in the hat, you've seen yes, that, I'm sure. But probably at some point. In a Scooby-Doo episode, maybe, <laughs> uh, uh, but it had no concept of this. And and here we are in the middle of a book where it figures prominently. And you took us out of the chrono chronology of Eli Marks so that we could wait until this. I mean, this is what you need in your life, folks. Find them. I don't know where you're going to find them. I'm blessed to have found him all those years ago. This is so cool. And so much fun. And I had such a great time talking to this guy from England yeah. about this topic. Uh, you're going to enjoy it. When yeah, next you will. If you get a chance before then, go online and just look at some clips. of They've done restorations of still frames from the movie. Uh, there really isn't any motion 
framage left, but they Turner Classic Movies did a whole like 50 minute reconstruction of what the movie would have been based on production stills. Then we'll just dive deeply into that uh, next episode when we talk to author Daniel Titley and we'll also listen to chapter five of The Miser's Dream. Until then, take care, everybody. Yeah, stay scary, everybody. Get ready because next episode, spooky, Lon Chaney, good stuff. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.